Our sermon text today is uh, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. I'm also going to include verse 10. Uh, I told a joke to start our last sermon. Um, I won't make this a trend, but let me try again here. I heard of a fellow who at age 50 bought 1,300 marbles. He placed them in a jar and set them on a shelf. When asked why, he said, Statistics say that I will die at about age 75. That's about 1,300 weeks. So I will throw one marble away at the end of each week. As I'm losing my marbles, I will have a regular reminder of how fleeting my life is. That joke actually may be good application of Psalm 90, which we read just a little bit ago, where it says we might have 70 years, maybe 80 if we're really strong, but they quickly pass and we fly away. This led the psalmist to pray that God would teach us to number our days, that we might get a heart of wisdom. That's how we need to lean into our text in James 4. We're going to hear James ask us the question, what is your life? What is your life? And before we have opportunity to give the wrong answer, he does like the psalmist and he tells you your life is like a mist that is quickly gone. The Bible does this a lot. You ever notice that? First Chronicles compares your life to a fading shadow. Psalm 103 talks about how mankind, all of us, are like fading flowers. Psalm 144 says we're but a breath. Why does the Bible do this? It is not to make us believe we're all dust in the wind, as one modern poet suggested. Thus our lives are meaningless and our dreams are vanity. No, quite the opposite. It is to reorient us to the things that matter eternally. It is to reorient us to a proper estimation of our Creator. And it is to reorient us, made in His image, in His world, to live according to His plans. And this all starts with cultivating an appropriate posture of humility. An appropriate posture of humility. And I think a very good place for us to start would be by bowing our heads in prayer, begging God that we might believe and receive this life-changing word. Let's pray. We come to you, O giver of every good and perfect gift, and we thank you for the word of life. As we open it now, we ask and pray that you'll visit every heart with humility, every mind with meekness, and every soul with a supernatural sense of our Savior, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from James chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
I read verse 10 because humility is the theme of chapter 4. It actually came right after James shared with us the gospel, which do you remember what it was? The jealous grace of Jesus. That despite all of our adultery, all of our flirting with the world, Jesus' grace saves us from our sin. We're all a mess, you know. That's actually why Jesus shed his blood on the cross. We inherited, as we talked about this morning, an estate, a condition of sin and misery. After our first parents chose to obey the devil. So now our hearts are filled with selfish ambitions and evil desires. That's how James 4 started. But praise be to God, the jealous grace of Jesus still pursues us. By the way, that's why he brought you here right now, today. And because we've been bought with a price, purchased from the slave market of sin, we can stop running with the devil and draw near to God each and every day by humbling ourselves, purifying our hearts, and confessing our sins. And those activities, James says, cause the devil to flee. That's worth pondering. Why does the devil flee from us when we humble ourselves before God? Why? Because God's presence is there. That's one reason, Elizabeth. But really, I think the bigger reason is the devil is the original proud rebel. He's the first one. And since day one in the garden, he wants to conform us to his image. He can't stand it. When we stop imitating him in our pride and our rebellion, and we start humbling ourselves, the devil says, Oh no, Joel, don't get on your knees before Jesus. I can't stand it when you do this. I'm out of here. That's why the devil flees. That's actually why I read verse 10 again. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The devil flees and God exalts you. God graces the humble. Now, after he does this theme, remember we had these bookends of humility in verses 6 and 10, this theme of humility. He then goes into three different topics, three sins which are all against humility. Last time we saw that slander is a sin against humility in verses 11 and 12. Today, we'll see how presumption is a sin against humility. And next time, we'll see the same with covetousness the start of chapter 5. So what is presumption? It's when you posture yourself like God. You overestimate your power and your rights in this world. It's the opposite. Presumption is the opposite of reliance and dependence on God, which looks outward, out of itself, towards Jesus. Presumption rather turns inward. It is self-assured. It finds confidence in self. That is why presumption is a sin against humility. So let's seek to understand what it looks like so we can posture ourselves rightly. Verse 13, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Our first point is prideful planning, prideful planning. In 1785, poet Robert Burns allegedly was plowing a field when he looked back to discover that he had destroyed a mouse's nest the poor creature had built for winter. And with plow supposedly in hand, Burns then penned the poem with this famous line, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. That still holds true today because, but it was not a new truth that Burns discovered 238 years ago. 
in the first century, we see James makes very clear that we are small creatures trying to find our niche in this world. Yet our plans can get quickly plowed over because each and every one of us are oblivious to what Monday is going to bring. James gives us the illustration of a couple of businessmen. I found it funny that I went to the brew and I was working on this text and sure enough, a couple of businessmen set up shop right at the table next to me. They were discussing Northern Indiana, figuring, up, figuring out the best places they could set up minor league stadiums for baseball teams. One guy had a five-year plan of what would be most profitable, what best places to target and everything. He said, talking about a guy he knew who could write a check for $100 million and if they could just convince him about these different stadiums and all. And he said, he said and I'm not waiting, I'm five years, I'm not waiting until I'm 82. And so I got up, I walked over there and I said, come now, you do not know what tomorrow may, no, I didn't actually do that. I wanted to though, because these men had it all figured out. They knew exactly what would work. They had their plans. We do not know what tomorrow will bring, James says. I'm actually in better position to understand James uh, 4, 13 and 14 than I was four years ago. Four years ago, I wasn't in a much different place. We had a group that came together. We had targeted northwest neighborhood of Elkhart. It was the most unchurched. It had the fewest churches. You know, I went to a planters conference. I was actually looking over my 2019 plans just a couple days ago. We had places to go. We had lots of folks to see, good news to provide. It was going to be great, remember? And we launched in January 2020 only to be hit with a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. Suddenly, we're literally all over the map. I'm in my living room preaching to a tablet. Then we're in my backyard under canopies. Then we're back to running that small chapel. <laughs> and folks weren't coming. I remember one service. We had eight people. And one had a medical emergency, and so three of them left. And then the alarm went off at my house, and my wife and daughter left. Suddenly, I'm preaching to three people. <laughs> We found out pretty quickly that we didn't have any control over tomorrow. And that humbled us. And it continues because it is very hard to plan a church. Now, there's nothing wrong with making plans for the future, strategizing. I have a planner that I look at every single day. We need to be charting some kind of course in our lives. So, James, what's the problem? Prideful planning. Making plans with no thought of God. Ever ready for him to change things up in our lives as he sees best. I'll confess, I still don't have answers for why God ordained 2020 to be the year COVID would rock our world. But it was his plan to change our situation. And it's up to us to humble ourselves, to say, we cannot expect, anticipate that our plans are going to produce the results that we expect, that we hope for. Humility means acknowledging God is sovereign over all future things. We have no guarantee our plans will come to fruition in the history that God has ordained, that he has fashioned. That's the problem with these two fellows. They're saying, today or tomorrow, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to anticipate this result. James rebukes this way of thinking as arrogant as evil. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane wrote in his journal, As to myself, I have no plans. Now, that may sound strange to us. 
Someone with who has no plans for the future would be seen as a fool. But McShane was not saying that we never make any plans. Rather, he was saying the most important thing was not his plans for his life. But God's plans were the most important thing because they're better than our plans. And that is such a wise way to live, friends. Why, Joel? When I have this attitude that God's plans are more important than mine, I am not ruined when God yanks the rug out from underneath me. And I can say with Job that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be his name. And I can trust that my labors in the Lord are never, never, never in vain. Even if it doesn't produce the results that I want or expect. Earlier in our earlier service, we sang the song, Your Labor's Not in Vain. That song has really special meaning to both me and Jamie because we first learned it at a church planner conference down in Orlando that we're going to. And when we're there, we learned about a young church planner who was sitting in the same seats we were the year prior. And he was in a hospital now dying. He left to plant a church in California one year prior, and he came down with a rare illness, and they didn't know if he would survive the week. We spent much of that conference praying for him, getting updates every day, and we kept singing the song, Your Labor's Not in Vain, over and over. It's based on 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I think it was the last day or the second to last day of the conference, he died. And then they sent us off to go plant churches. That song was a powerful reminder in the year of COVID when actually many of the people that I knew died. And we're reminded actually of James' next point. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James asked this question to further fertilize our humility because ours is a short stay. That's our second point, a short stay. Death brings an end to us all often when we least expect it. There's a fable about a master in Baghdad who sent his servant into the marketplace. And the servant returns and he's white-faced and he's shaking like a leaf. He tells his master how he got bumped in the crowded marketplace. He turned around and saw it was death himself staring at him and making a threatening gesture. So the servant begged the master for a horse to ride to Samara so death would not find him. The master agreed, and the servant got on the horse and ran off in haste. The master then went to the market to get what he needed, and he ran into death there. The master walked up and said, Hey, death, why did you threaten my servant? And death replied, I wasn't threatening him at all. He simply shocked me when I saw him here, because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. Friends, that's a funny joke but I tell it to communicate a Bible truth. We all have a short stay. We can't avoid death. And we're ever one day closer to the end of our earthly life. What is your life for your mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes? We know what this is like. We've all been on the roads on a foggy morning. We turn on our lights, right? We slow down our speed because we can't see very far in front of us. Yet we know in just a few hours, the sun's going to come up and the fog's going to disappear. That's us. We're like steam coming out of the kettle. James says your life is like that poof. It's gone. We can nod. But the truth is we really don't think like that. We don't think like that. So what is the point of reminding us how brief our lives are? 
James wants us to live with the proper perspective about our lives. We need to see the big picture and not set our clocks to fog time. <coughs> we're prone to set our clocks to fog time. See, we're creatures, every one of us, with eternal souls. And God placed eternity in our hearts, and we need to live with that perspective. I think one of the great drawbacks of living in 21st century America is we're really great at staying busy. You ever heard the quote, life is short, enjoy it. In other words, due to life's uncertainty, we need to make the absolute most of it while we're here. And we'll worry about death at the end. Friends, a better and a wiser quote than life is short, enjoy it is, eternity is long, prepare for it. Eternity is long, prepare for it. Wrong perspective was the problem of these businessmen looking to make an earthly profit. They're looking at their maps, looking at their plans. James warns them, you're basically looking at through the wrong end of the telescope. We need to see that life is short, eternity is long, so the things that we do each and every day actually do need to be motivated by a profit motive. But that needs to be an eternal profit motive, like Brandon preached this morning. Perhaps James is actually remembering what his half-brother Jesus once said. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and lose their soul, lose or forfeit their soul? A good question to ponder with every day that God has gifted us with is to wake up and say, am I living for eternity? Am I going to live for eternity today? If you would ask your closest friend, say to them, do you think I'm living for eternity, Mike? Do you think I'm living for eternity, Luke? What would your friend say to you? Friend, we ought to be able to look them in the eye and say, it's a short stay, so I'm striving for spectacular. I'm striving for spectacular. What might a spectacular short stay look like, Joel? A life of humility. A life of humility. James said earlier, such a life would be notable for being a doer of the word. One that bridles the tongue. A life that's pure and undefiled. That visits widows and orphans, those who are in need. A life that actually makes visible God's reign and thus leaves this world better off after we're apart. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. Ours is a short stay, so let's make it matter each and every day. So let's move on to our last point. A humble life is God-guided. A humble life is God-guided. Verse 15, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Instead of living without regard for God, James is saying we need to live into God's will for our lives. Our lives need to be God-guided, which is more than just figuring out what we want to do and then adding, ah, Lord willing, at the end of it. A lot of people do that, right? Lord willing, Lord willing. No. 
If I say the Lord wills, it means it's like saying, I don't have any rights to my life. That's what this means. I stop singing Bon Jovi's, it's my life. No. And I start singing the humble song. Take my life and let it be consecrated wholly to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. In other words, it's to take up this humble posture and to place your life entirely at God's disposal. It's to ask that question each and every day. So Joel, what is God's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? Now I know that can be a scary thing because some of us think God's will, oh no, he wants me to sell everything I have and go to some distant land and be a missionary. That's the only mattering thing I can do, telling people about Jesus. That might be true for a few of us, but not for most of us. If you're thinking you do that, actually, let's talk afterwards. <laughs> we'll pray for a month or two before you make that kind of decision. God will make it clear. That also gets at kind of another scary thing because it seems God's will cannot be fully known, right? We can't fully know God's will. There's lots of questions where the answer is not black and white. It's pretty gray. Should I buy this house or should I rent an apartment right now? Should Jamie and I foster this kid that's needing a home? Should I buy this car or that one? Or should I get a bike? There are lots of things where there's not clear answers that need much prayer. But that's not James' point here because he warns us not to boast in arrogance. And the Greek word for arrogance is Alazonea. It's actually found in one other place in the Bible, 1 John 2.16, where John writes, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride, the alozonea, of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. That word for arrogance can also be translated pride. Pride in what we are and all we can get for ourselves in this life. James and John are both talking about wills that are earthly focused. And John is actually using the language that you find in Genesis 3 when Eve saw that fruit that was forbidden, that the tree was good for food, delight to the eyes, that tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she obeyed the serpent, as did Adam, and brought us into this whole mess. And if we ignore God's will and say we're going to live how we want in his world, we too will be boasting in our arrogance. And it's not hard to do if all you're doing is listening to the voices out there. That's why we need to be in our Bibles each and every day, meditating on God's word. We're surrounded by the boasts. I mean, I get pretty frustrated. I get 35 minutes a week to try and argue with the 24-7 that comes at us each and every day. They're surrounded by the boasts of self-made folks who don't think they need God. They may not think it. They're living as practical atheists. They don't give God the credit for their existence. Perhaps the most identifiable boast is the one of William Ernest Henley. He write, wrote long ago, Out of the night that covers me, black as pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears loom but the horror of the shade. And yet, 
the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. Matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Being the master of my fate and the captain of my soul is the boast of most of our friends, most of our neighbors. And sadly, this is the exact opposite of being free, of living truly free. Freedom comes when the Lord Jesus sets us free to live as we were created, as those who are privileged out of all creation uniquely to glorify, reflect God's glory in this world. To refuse to live as God created you to live in his world is not living free any more than it is for a fish to jump out of the lake and say, I'm living free, I'm living free, right? Plus, it's not doing the right thing. And for that, for us, that's sin. What's James talking about there, Joel? James is talking about sins of omission. Sins of omission. We have sins of commission, sins we commit. When I slander someone, when I steal, I commit sins. Those are sins of commission. But when there's things that I'm supposed to do that are God's will and I don't do them, I refuse to do them, those are sins of omission. Sins of omission. Like when I see my wife is really busy and I want to take a nap, the question is not, should I offer to help her? The question is, is it the Lord's will that I help her? And I don't really need a booming voice from heaven saying, yes, Joel. (laughs) No, it's God's will for me to help my wife. When I wake up on a Sunday morning, the question is not, do I feel like going to church today? The question is, does the Lord will that I go to church? And the answer is yes, when I know that my life is entirely at God's disposal. Now we may ask, Joel, how can I know all of what the Lord's will is for my life? Is there a guide, Joel, that could give me direction as to how to live? I'm glad you asked. God will not hide his will from any who earnestly seek it because it is God's deep desire that we not just know his will, but that we actually walk in his will. And he's given us a guide to know his will so you too can live God-guided lives. Jesus says in Matthew 4.4 that man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God, yes, has given us our Bibles to guide us. And by feeding on his word, by attending to the preaching in a local congregation, we will find out the will of God. The Bible will guide us in wisdom. It will reveal the big picture, the greater spiritual reality. And then we will not just see with earthly eyes and fall into sin. So I leave it to us as we close here to ponder James' question. It's a straightforward question. What is your life? Will you flee from this question? We flee from the challenge that it brings. Friends, you and I have limited time. My mother actually called me last week to tell me that a man that I know well, I used to actually work for him, he went home this week on hospice. He has little time left. And so do you and I. Death is a soon certainty for us all, and that's why the gospel is such good news. God the Father, in his love, sent his Son to save dying men, And Jesus conquered our last great enemy, death. And Jesus conquering death means the start of a new eternal creation, the resurrection from the dead, which means for the believer, our eternity began that first Easter day 
eternal life is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the fact that we're living for eternity, it allows us to relax when we see we're frail creatures who don't have any control over tomorrow, get plowed over in a moment. We don't have control really over anything in this world. Think about it. But the fact that we live for eternity means we're going to be okay. If you're not yet Christian, I want you to hear the good news that you can have eternal life in Christ. That's why Jesus came, for you. Why? Because you have a coming appointment in God's planner. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You have a day in God's planner. It's the most important business you can be doing, especially if you're not yet a believer is to do business with God today. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you right now and we do thank you that you have loved us in sending your son Jesus into our world to save us from our sins and to conquer death. And now you are about the work of revealing your kingdom, your reign here in this world. So I pray that you will help each and every one of us to number our days and to seek to live spectacular lives during this short stay we have. I pray that we will take up the appropriate posture as those made in your image, meant to uh, live according to your will and to see that apart from you, we can do nothing. I ask that you will work in our hearts, give us your spirit in new measure, and give us that wisdom from above. And if there be any of us who have yet to take a hold of Christ, I ask and pray right now with them that we will come to you, Lord. Will you come into our hearts? Will you forgive us our sins? Will you change us and make us new by the power of your Spirit that we may live to the praise of your glorious grace? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.